Hello. Welcome to Super Urbanism, the podcast from the point where architecture ends and life begins. If you remember, in the last episode, we were at the Venice Architecture Biennale. We spoke to the curator, Leslie Locco, and the president of the Biennales, Robert Cicuto. Excuse my Italian. Whenever the Biennale comes along, though, the art one or the architecture one, the Prada Foundation, which is normally based in Milan, but which owns a lovely palazzo halfway down the Grand Canal, they always put on an exhibition, and I always really like going to see it, because it comes at the intellectual climate or dominant argument or discussion taking place within the Biennale from this really interesting point of view. It's quite an elitist organisation. It's very much the brainchild of Mutua Prada with a kind of coterie of a salon of kind of intellectual types around her. And sometimes I don't really like the show. Sometimes it just goes whizzing straight over my head. But I always admire the way it approaches the discussion of the times from this really intelligent point of view, this really elevated point of view. It doesn't talk down to you. And in 2018, there was a brilliant show on there when the architecture biennale was on uh the show was called machine a pensée and you know it's again slightly rarefied language which they use a french french term but the, the show was excellent it was focused on the architecture of philosophy like there was heidegger's secluded hut in the black forest amazing photographs of it and a kind of recreation of wittgenstein's cabin on the fjord in norway it was a lovely bit of mapping, too, of Adorno and the rest of the Frankfurt School's time in Los Angeles, being miserable there and hating it. It was just a lovely, wry, funny show. It was full of maps and models and recreations. And the relationship to the ideas was left hanging in the air. You had to kind of think about these, what these people thought and to what degree the architecture related to that. It was really clever. And that show was curated by someone who, having seen the second show that they've put on, I have to say, is one of my favourite curators in the whole wide world. His name is Dieter Rollstrater, who has a small gallery attached to the University of Chicago. He's from Belgium. Great guy, very funny, very dry. Explains his work really well. Dieter Rollstrater speaking here. I'm a curator based at the University of Chicago who's done some freelance work for the Fondazione Prada and my latest effort at the Cacornere in Venice for the Fondazione Prada is an exhibition titled Tutti parlano del tempo, alle reden über das Wetter, everybody talks about the weather. The, 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 the gambit of the exhibition is you know, to kind of weaponize the banality of the topic of weather as a way to get people to more directly address you know, the much larger issue of the climate crisis. Even though Dieter was in charge, I wasn't really sure what to expect from the show. One has these nervous thoughts of videos of plastic floating in oceans. A polar bear. Yeah, I thought there would be polar bears. But there were no polar bears. On coming into the show, what I saw were two posters. One, which I read from the label, was created by the German Socialist Student Union in 1968. Triumvirate, Marx, Engels and Lenin in profile with the words Alle Reden vom Wetter, wir nicht. Everyone talks about the weather, we don't. Meaning we have more serious things to talk about as Marxists. We're talking about the emancipation of the working classes. But then there was another poster from 2019 that mimicked that original poster, a triumvirate of European climate activists, one of which was Greta Thunberg. 
And the legend was, Alle reden vom Wetter, wir auch. Everyone talks about, about the weather, so do we. But being a bit of a Marxist, Dieter's intro got me to sit up and pay attention. And as I walked around, I realised the show's ambition. It was nothing short of a retelling of history from a climactic point of view. You know, art and science need each other. You know, we need the alarmist hard facts uh, of science, but we also need you know, the sense of hope that art inspires in producing things of beauty. I've seen this strategy before. The Rotterdam Architecture Biennale main show effectively tried to do this last year. Mario Cuccinella's show at the Architectural Association, also from last year, did the same. Dieter's show, though, was of a different order. Ridiculously vast and expansive, given the time frame of nine months that he was given to pull it together. Given its scale, it would be impossible for me to go into every single exhibit. So I asked Dieter to show me around and perhaps pick out some of the exhibits which spoke most to Venice, the city we were in at the time. This show was born from uh, an observation that wasn't, you know, is not uniquely mine and it's not one that I was the first to articulate. In fact, Amitav Ghosh, a book of Amitav Ghosh was very important in kind of helping me articulate this argument. The Great Derangement is the title of the book. And so the observation concerns this odd blindness, indifference, or kind of reluctance on the part of the contemporary art mainstream, the mainstream of the contemporary art world, to kind of more directly, thematically and programmatically address the climate crisis, which, you know, is the single greatest existential challenge ever faced by humankind in its 100,000-year history. Yet, if you look at the big museums, the big biennials around the world, you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell from their programming that this sort of Damocles is, you know, not just hovering above our heads, but above, you know, planet Earth in general. And of course, this paralysis, this indifference, this, this, this denialism in a way, right, um, has a, a variety of sources. One of them has obviously to do with the complexity of the problem of cri- climate crisis or the enormity of the problem of climate crisis. Also our guilt, of course, as residents of an art world that is, of course, quite, you know, very wasteful economy and complicit in a lot of the problems that, you know, constitute the issue. So, so that, you know, is not a valid enough reason to kind of look the other way. So um, I have been trying to figure out, trying to wrap my head around this enormous challenge of, you know, how do we get the art world to pay more attention in a way um, to this issue, which, you know, everyone's aware of, but somehow is, is kind of like, you know, tucked away in some kind of dark recess of our minds. And so I made a small show at the University of Chicago. I run a gallery there, the Nubar Collegium, and that was a show that much more directly confronted the climate crisis issue head-on, um, but I did so in a very small space with just four artists. So the idea there was like, okay, this, you know, it's a giant problem. Let's try to solve it in a tiny show. And the solution there was to kind of think very locally, and I made an exhibition with only Chicago-based artists who, you know, just in a manner of speaking, were able to walk their work over to the space. So, you know, like an exhibition with zero carbon footprint, if you wish. Um, And so, uh, parallelly, I started developing this exhibition, and the idea here was always like, okay, if the climate crisis is too paralyzingly vast a problem for the contemporary art world to responsibly talk about, 
let's perhaps approach the issue from the vantage point of the weather, which is something that everyone always talks about, has talked about forever, and also greatly enjoys talking about. I mean, it's what my mother always talks about when I pick up the phone, calling her from Chicago and Belgium. It's what every taxi driver in every country around the world will, you know, comment upon the first. Um, so everybody always talks about the weather. Tutti parlano del tempo. And, um, and, and, and I'm interested in kind of the perceived or the presumed banality of the weather as a subject matter, which of course is not something that we can talk about as innocently anymore as we used to do, right? Like clouds are no longer just clouds. Rain is no longer just rain. It's always immediately, a, a, you know, there's flood. I, just yesterday, the worst flooding in Emilia-Romagna, Bologna, in a hundred years' time. Last year, when I was in the process of formulating the proposal for this exhibition, Northern Italy witnessed its worst drought in 70 years. And, you know, those are climatological um, facts that manifest themselves in weather phenomena. And so, you know, the claim of the show, or the, or the, 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 the gambit of the exhibition is, you know, to kind of weaponize the banality of the topic of weather as a way to get people to more directly address, you know, the much larger issue of the climate crisis. Can you tell me what this picture is? So it's a, um, it's a, it's a, it's not a great painting. <laughs> it's a historical artwork. It's from the early 18th uh, century. It's from 74 or 75. And the artist who made it is uh, an uh, anonymous um, a painter from the Veneto, the region that Venice is part of. And it is um, permanently, it's a, it's a part of the permanent collection of the Fondazione Quirini Stampale. We're in a room here that gathers a number of historical artworks. And these works kind of speak to the deeper history of art as a tool to, erect, to, to record, in a way, the influence of changing weather patterns on cultural history. It's really interesting to look at historical paintings through a new prism, a new way of looking at them. These aren't the depictions of people of play, these are the depictions of people dealing with extreme weather. A strange shift has happened. None of these paintings deal with climate change or climate crisis, not very directly. Um, but, you know, they kind of just tend to this incredibly rich tradition, this rich history that we know of artists responding to weather phenomena, recording weather phenomena. You know, um, there's a replica of a painting by John's Constable downstairs, which is not the first, but it's a very powerful early statement in this long history of artists gazing at clouds for aesthetic inspiration. Um, so anyway, this picture shows Venetians um, trying to walk on a frozen on the frozen lagoon. So it's the view from the Fondamente Nove, which is the northern edge of town. It's Canareggio. It, you know, the airport today would be here somewhere, and so the lagoon was frozen solid. It's you know, this was not. Um, an extremely rare occurrence at the time. The last time that the, the lagoon froze over in Venice, I think, was sometime in the 1940s. And there's many restaurants in Venice that have pictures from the 30s or 40s that show people walking on frozen canals, the frozen Grand Canal, the frozen lagoon, which, of course, you know, is not something that we can imagine ever taking place again, and it probably won't, you know, given the situation of, you know, um, you know kind of global climate today but anyway um, <clears throat> I mean it's a playful picture it's you know people kind of stumbling there's a 
among the replicas that are part of a big installation downstairs, there's a picture, there's a, there's a replica of a painting of Hendrik Averkamp. He's a Dutch painter of the Golden Age. And it's an earlier image, it's from 1640, but you know, it already shows how much better the Dutch were going to get at skating than the Italians ever had a chance to do because, you know, it's not something that is part of kind of like the national sporting tradition. I love that there's a pretty poor artwork by an anonymous painter at the core of this exhibition. I mean, it looks uh, far earlier than the 18th century, I must say, but it's just a great display of people unused to extreme weather conditions. Lots of slapstick in there, lots of funny Italians trying to go on a gondola across the lake, failing, falling over, people dancing, skating, falling on their behinds, all under this brooding sky. It's a perfect image to lead the exhibition. We chose this image as um, the lead campaign image of the exhibition. It's on the cover of the book. It's on the banners, it's on the posters, it's on the invites, it's on the website. Um, there's a light touch to it. Kind of reveals the deep historical reach, reach of the research that undergirds the exhibition. And, and of course, it's, uh, you know, utterly local. It is a Venetian, it's a story of Venice. And, you know, obviously, um, if you make a show about the climate crisis or about weather, I mean, it's an exhibition about the weather, right? It's an exhibition that talks about the weather, but behind this innocuous-seeming facade is the much larger topic of the, of, the, of the climate crisis. Obviously, if you make a show about that tangle of subject in, an ex in a city like Venice, uh, you know, the specter of Venice's disappearance by the end of this century is always going to loom very large on the horizon. And, but, you know, Venice is a city that has had to live with weather, changing weather patterns for a very long time. And in a way, this image is a counterpoint to the slight catastrophilia that, you know, suffuses our vision of Venice in the Anthropocene. So, these... Carotaggi, core samples. So, perhaps you could tell me yeah. what... First of all, what these what these are? Yeah. Um, so this is a work by a Venetian artist, a young, uh, fairly uh, a Venetian artist, um, Giorgio Andreotta Calò, contemporary artist. He's, uh, as the label describes, that rarest of birds, namely. Yeah, this one's a bit loud. Loud because. Yeah. That's a. It's short, it's short. I mean, we turn up the volume on this one for yesterday's event, and I think we should turn it down a little bit. But as Dieter turned down the volume on that classic of climate catastrophe, When the Levee Breaks by Led Zeppelin, I looked at the core samples lying across the gallery floor. Do you know what a core sample is? Well, imagine you've got a corkscrew. You screw it down into the mud, or, as is often the case, ice, as we have seen in Antarctic. You pull out a long cylinder of material which has been accreted over centuries, and in your cylinder you have cross-section going back into the past of the deposits laid down over the successive years. It's a way of understanding the historical layers of either atmosphere or sediment that is laid over successive generations over successive years at the bottom of a river or a glacier. We're looking at a, at a floor piece here that's made up of core samples. Core samples from the lagoon. Um, here in Venice. They were dug up 
um, towards the industrial end of the city where um, you know the active harbor still is today or part of the active harbor still is today and you know it's a work by a, by a Venetian born and artist who still lives here today Giorgio Andreotta Calò a fairly young Italian artist and um, I mean obviously it's on the one hand there's this direct association with the long shadow of land art environmental art, earthworks as kind of like an early instance of arts burgeoning interest in environmental issues, but obviously the core sample as a tool, as a scientific instrument, is also something that we've not grown accustomed to seeing much perhaps, for certainly this is the first time I have seen a core sample, but it's like a word that we now encounter very often in the general press when we talk about climate change, because of course, you know, one of the main one of the main ways in which one can measure the disappearance of Antarctic ice, for instance, is by taking core samples, or you know, the, one of the primary ways in which you can measure the change of the constitution of the atmosphere is again through core samples. So they're they're also a chronology, right? I mean, they're 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 kind of chronometers, right? They are records of of, of time and changing conditions in the air, in the water, in the earth, in, in this particular city, which, as I said before, in 77 years, 77 years is um, assumed to sink entirely or to have been submerged entirely. By the end of the century, Venice is gone. And there's no real stopping it. And that's also, you know, that's, that'll, that'll, that serves as well, serves as right. It's really interesting that there's a kind of like, I'm not, not a scientist, yeah. uh, but we're looking at this clearly diff, kind of different atmospheric conditions yes, which exactly. are legible through the piece, isn't yes. there? Yeah, and yes, exactly, you know, so I'm not a scientist either, um, but you don't have to be a scientist, right? And you no longer have to be a scientist to kind of understand the urgency of the moment that we find ourselves in. But yes, I mean, they're, they're utterly legible as a... You know, they're kind of enigmatic presences, but once you know that what, where they're from, what they are, then they become quite legible, actually. One thing that would be really good to do is just to talk about the relationship with the university. Sure. Perhaps if we could find, um, I don't know, is there a particular graphic or statistic which you think is really on one well, of the labels which, which, you, which, which would be good this to is a, I, This is a good, you know, just uh, yeah. as an aside... In the site, this is a graphic that basically um, shows the, 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 these are the findings of different um, polls that try to um, quantify the measure or, or the, 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 the degree of consensus in the scientific community about the reality of climate change. So, according to one particular study made in 2019, there's not a single scientist in the world who disagrees with the scientific findings of, uh, of climatological science today. So, um, and it, it's paired with those drawings by a outsider artist, a Czech-born outsider artist, who spent his entire, who spent most of his adult creative life in an institution, walked inside a small room from which he would every day look outside draw and, and draw these kind of imagined maps of non-existing weather. Um, so there's, you know, fact and fantasy, fact and fiction kind of intermix. But let's go to, uh, I'll show you another. That's a very good, that's a perfect example. These drawings by Jdenek Koshek, who was born in a small Czech town in 1949. 
really are fascinating. They look incredibly plausible. The maps, weather phenomena, gradations of yellows, oranges giving way to reds and blues, lines on a map that we're used to from our weather systems. It's total fabrication. It's completely We would draw these things every single day. There's a date of 1994. Next to it, we have a series of bar charts which show conclusively that there is a consensus on global warming. This fact and fiction, apparently. But as is the case with all good art and exhibitions, the juxtaposition of artworks and visual information can often confound original intention. I'm not so sure that I agree with Dieter's interpretation of his own relationships, though I call him for making them. This is a, an artwork by Nina Canel, and it's uh, made up of, of, of glass globes that are um, that she basically retrieved from the old lightning conductors. So that's how uh, we no longer use glass globes of this kind to capture lightning, but back in the day we did. So they are maybe a hundred years old, and they're you know weathered because of all of the storms that they've had, that that they've braved and. So there's a short text about that particular work here, um, but then this map, this scientific map, shows the occurrence of lightning across the globe. This does not necessarily have anything to do with changing weather patterns, um, because of course, you know, not every artwork in the exhibition is here to illustrate a dramatic point or other. You know, it's, there's also an important, an important part of the show is also to kind of celebrate the history in a way of art, registering weather as a field of metaphors, uh, but also as, you know, a, a, a realm of natural beauty in a way, right? I love this compilation of glass balls that are traditionally used as lightning conductors that Nina Canal, the artist, has created. She stacked them together. And there's this wonderful sense of weather as a phenomenon, not just to be recorded, but also like as in a crystal ball to be predicted. There's an important point here that Dieter is making. We have a, an intense relationship with the weather and always have them. Our current concerns should be seen through a history of prediction augury. All of the panels, and there's quite a few peppered throughout the show, there's 26 in all I believe, so each panel basically uh, is composed of information that speaks to the artworks, written from the standard curatorial perspective of art history and kind of cultural associations. And then each of those texts are paired with a fairly voluminous snippet of scientific information, which is uh, the result of a deep collaboration between the Fondazione Prada and the university here in Venice, Cafoscari, um, whose earth science and environmental humanities um, department got, you know, teamed up with the Fondazione um, to um, basically amass, accumulate this scientific information mostly in the, in, in the shape of graphics, the shape of maps, and the shape of diagrams um, to, you know, speak about the same subject that the artworks talk about. So if this, you know, if this is a storm room and if this, if this is the wind room, there's one work in it that, you know, kind of alludes to the specter of lightning, but of course also to the idea of the crystal ball as a divining tool in which you can see the future, and the future can be bleak and, you know, less so. Um, so if this is a work that kind of, you know, 
has lightning as its subject matter, then this, you know, the, the, the accompanying scientific information is also just you know, a very straightforward chart of the occurrence of lightning across the globe. So how did it work? Was it a case of you choose selecting the artwork and, and, then find, and then finding the most appropriate information that would yes. sit alongside it? Yes, it began with, I mean, it's, you know, I, I, this is not a, um, it's not something that everyone um, necessarily would, um, you know, it starts with the art. For me, it starts with the artwork. It starts with the artist. It's an art exhibition, first and foremost. Um, it's also only only it's only it's it's also just that you know it's just art. They're just artworks. They're just artists. I'm just a curator. But it is, of course, you know, if if the subject matter is if the topic is weather, and the deeper topic is the issue of the climate crisis, then, you know, obviously you, this is something that you have to take extremely seriously, so it is important for us at a very early stage of the development of the project to make sure that this project would have solid anchorage in scientific facts, scientific information in, in, in the work of the scientific community. So that was always, uh, from, the, from the very beginning, it was understood that that was a, like a key component of the exhibition. It is not a, it's not an exhibition of scientific uh, uh, materials or scientific facts, uh, but that, you know, it's a very um, fundamental aspect of the infrastructure, the intellectual infrastructure on the show. Prada Foundation is clearly moving into a period where it wants to have engagement between art and science. And that's always quite a dangerous dialogue to set up because you can be talking past each other, the languages can be very different the attempts to create consensus can often be phony. So what Dieter has done here I think is really interesting and I think it is successful, the way that the, which the science speaks to the art and the art speaks to the science, often in a way that doesn't always say something about climate change or catastrophe. Weather can be weather. Data can be data. They don't always add up and say something coherent. Obviously there's an underlying narrative but I love the way in which history and art weave in its way in and out of suggesting a, another order, another order of history. You cannot just pin things down to climate. Obviously, there are certain dynamics with human-made climate change, but there is also another possibility. There's an endless sense of another possibility, and I love this about the show. And the dialogue with the academic institution makes this possible. The Piano Nobile is, is, is this, you know, large central space with these amazing frescoes. You know, the fan that's very slowly revolving here, hung from the ceiling, is an artwork. It's a fun, it's a, but it's also a fully functional object that does something to the climate, to the, to the airflow in the space that allows Fondazione Prada to be able to crank, to, to bring down the air conditioning in, uh, in the midst of summer. So there's, you know, kind of an environmental proposal here. But anyway, the two main features of the room, are, it, it, I mean, the main feature of the room is the juxtaposition of art and science. And so if you look at the library here, a beautifully designed object by uh, our friends from New York, 2x4, which, you know, comes with seating and it invites people to peruse the bibliography that it's the heart of the show. So, you know, a quick look, a quick scan of the contents of the, of the library, and a lot of it is general popular science, but there's also a lot of, you know, like, you know, deep tomes and there's Greta Thunberg and all that. 
But just a quick scan at many of the titles here, it's all, you know, a lot of it is the end of the world and the end is nigh and the uninhabitable world and the, you know, the world after us and, you know, um, so, and this is one of the problems, or this is one of the problems, and I'm not the first one to observe this, of course, many people have done this before me, but the problem of the scientific community is a little bit like how, you know, the challenge of, um, finding the right register to communicate this emergency and then very often science will automatically switch into disaster mode you know the mode of catastrophe and 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 you know it doesn't help the problem of this general paralysis that we feel and um and the artwork of vivian sutter over here is beautiful this this amazing installation of 58 paintings that she made in her garden in Guatemala over the course of the years, always outside, always exposing the paintings to the elements, to the rain, to you know the dogs that walk over the paintings as they dry on the ground, to you know leaves that fall off the trees. I mean, this to me, this work is a record of the beauty of the world. You know, planet Earth are the only one we'll ever have, right? There is no planet B, is one of the titles of the books here. And so, you know, one of the balances that I think we've been able to strike in the constellation of this exhibition is that, you know, art and science need each other. You know, we need the alarmist um, hard facts uh, of science, but we also need, you know, the sense of hope that art inspires in producing things of beauty. And that's it. Dieter Rollstrater there, the curator of Everybody Talks About the Weather at the Prada Foundation at Carcorner, or Carcorner as it looks like to a Brit, at the Prada Foundation in uh, Venice. If you're going to the Venice Architecture Biennale, strongly recommend that you give it a look as you go. It's an excellent show. It does a lot of things. One of the things I think one of my favourite moments is its inclusion of Poussin's painting, The Four Seasons, in which he... It's a series of allegorical paintings that he painted towards the end of his life. The last painting is Winter, which includes uh, a depiction of the biblical flood in it. And you have this amazing kind of correlation of the weather as a, as a climatic event, as the end, marking the end point of, of the personal life, the external idea of the apocalypse and the internal sense of one's own demise become united. And that's always been seen in one direction, you know, that, that Poussin's under externalizing his own sense of his own mortality. Whereas if we look at it from another another point of view, we have the external idea of the, the, the flood um, being projected onto onto the individual. There's a lot of interesting things that the work do there. Once you start looking at them in these climactic kind of ways in which Dieter is asking us to do, they, they start to do all kinds of interesting things, not perhaps the ones that, that um, the, the curator has originally thought of. But that's what makes a great exhibition as a, a sense of, of, of unexpected revelations of hidden ideas within complex works of art. I also thought it stuck a very interesting tone of difference to the Venice Architecture Biennale, which we looked at in the last episode. Although a very commendable project, in that you could see there was an attempt to forge an identity amongst a group of disparate artists or architects to create a narrative about where we are going next. All very good, all very commendable. But born slightly of a lack of confidence, a lack of sense of collective purpose in a particular project i mean admittedly it's a very different beast this exhibition it's a curated by a single individual but here you have a sense that there's a thesis that the curator has 
here's an idea, here's a narrative, here are a group of artworks by very different people, historical pieces, the Poussin, as, as, as I've just mentioned, all the way up to a photographer like Thomas Ruff, who's depicted a, a scene of a twister using images downloaded from the internet. Representation is changing, and therefore meaning is changing. So you have these different ideas, these different conflicting projects, which possibly actually conflict the, with the thesis that the curator is putting forward. But that made it, to me, such a rich experience. And although I don't want to kick the, the Venice Biennale show, it did suggest a lack of confidence. And that confidence is such an interesting and, and engaging thing to experience as a viewer. You, you go into a project and you understand that there is a there is a set of parameters which the curators set up for you, but within those you may explore them to yourselves and to your own delight. And I really did, and I recommend it. Super Urbanism was presented by Tim Abrahams and produced by Lucy Ditchman of the Feast Collective. It was a Machine Books podcast. Please do all those things you do with a podcast you like. Subscribe to it, like it, put it on social media, tell your friends all about it. And you can find more episodes wherever you seek out your listenings on different platforms. You know the deal. Anyway, there's more information about us at www.machinebooks.co.uk.